We've been singing about it, but it must have been terribly hard for Israel to believe it. Generations of unanswered prayers and unanswered questions will have that effect on people. We're such a young country, it's hard for us sometimes to step back into Bible times and appreciate the length of some of these historical events we've been reading about as we move through the Bible together. If you're new to our church, we are taking 31 weeks to move through the entire Bible. We're then discussing those in small groups, in homes and here on campus. If you don't have a group, we'd love for you to fill out that connection card and let us know that you'd like to connect in a Bible study group. People who are doing the whole thing are experiencing these scriptures in three ways. They're reading it during the week, they're hearing me teach at least a portion of it on Sunday, and then they're discussing and applying it in a smaller group of people. It's absolutely wonderful, and I love to hear the conversations that are coming back our way from people who are saying things like, I didn't know this was in the Bible. I didn't know that it happened. I didn't know God was like that. I didn't appreciate how long Abraham had to wait. I'm having great conversations with my kids about how this works out in their lives in school. That's what we're about. Teaching people together we're all on the journey to love God and trust Him as He deserves to be loved and trusted. And we've been singing that God is mighty to save, but it must have been terribly hard for Israel to believe it. God had told them so earlier, but now it's their time to walk into that grim prophecy that they would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. 400 years. By the time Israel left Egypt, they had been captives for twice as long as America has existed. Years and years and years had gone by. One man, Moses, had been miraculously rescued from the slaughter of innocents. This is a grim story, and reading it several times this week, I was reminded of something that I'd like to draw to your attention. When the Bible is telling you a story, in other words, when it's a narrative rather than a letter, for instance, like the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, repetition is, your, is a narrative's way of drawing something to your attention. It's not visual, so it repeats for emphasis. Anytime the Bible is repeating itself, it's saying to the reader, did you, did you see this? Watch this, this is important, and the, the absolute brutality of Israel's slavery and the miracle of their deliverance begins in the very first chapter of Exodus. It's going to take God, and God alone can do this, to deliver Israel and to continue to keep the promises that He had made, because God's long game was that from this nation a Savior would rise that would bless all the families on earth, but that appears to be very badly stalled. For 400 years, just as God said it would happen, they have been captive. And this is how the Bible brings us into the miracle of Israel's deliverance. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python, Ramses, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See the repetition? Twice now. Slaves. Bitter labor. Hard labor, heavy burdens. In 2015, there's no way for us to accurately picture just how hopeless these people were. There was no one alive who had ever known anyone who was free. 400 years have passed. It's very unlikely that any of us know any of our ancestors from 400 years ago. You'd have to do some real digging to go back that far. There is absolutely no memory of anything other than crushing labor. And now you see the bitter, brutal political calculation of Egypt. There are too many people. Should we be invaded or have any other kind of pressure, these slaves could turn into an army and get away from us. Let's make it harder on them than it's ever been. So what you have in this deliverance, first of all, you have a brutal slave master named Pharaoh who had no respect for Joseph, who long, long ago had saved Egypt and maintained it as a superpower under God's direction. And then God spoke to Moses. And that historical event is so important to our culture, people even talk about a burning bush experience where they hear from God. And it's a turning point that reorients their whole life. But we believe that it's Moses himself who's writing this story, and Moses candidly tells you his reaction to the burning bush. If you read it this week, what's his reaction in a phrase? Send somebody else. I don't want to do it. You have a brutal Pharaoh, and you also have a very fearful leader. When God is speaking to Moses, he says things like this. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Have you ever said to God, who am I? I haven't talked to him about it. I am quite sure that our missionary at many times during his long walk in Japan has said to himself, who am I to be doing all this? Yes, sir. Okay. We didn't set that up. That's just... He would be less than human if he didn't ask himself at various points as God calls him forward. Who, me? Me? Moses doesn't want to do it. You see, Moses had been a prince of Egypt. But Peter, uh, Stephen's sermon in the New Testament gives us insight into a pivotal day in Moses' life. He had gone to visit his enslaved brethren and saw one of these taskmasters ruthlessly beating a Hebrew. And Moses looked both ways and murdered that slave driver, hid the body. Stephen, in the days of Jesus, looking back on those events, said that Moses believed that at that time people would understand that he was bringing Moses up to deliver them out of Pharaoh's hand. But it wasn't God's time. And Moses grew afraid and he ran for his life. And for 40 years, the prince of Egypt has been a sheep herder on the backside of the desert. And it's a lonely, tough existence. 
And what God is doing in the desert of Egypt is breaking Moses of any self-reliance and any inflated visions of what he can do on his own. And Moses has an encounter with God by God's own direction, and God says, I'm going to send you, and you're going to bring them out. And Moses asks a reasonable but entirely fearful self-centered question, which haunts every disciple of Jesus I've ever met. When God calls us to do bigger and greater things, we say, who, me? With this bank account? With my skill set? With my family? With my lack of ability to speak, that's one of Moses' main arguments with God. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, God said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, say to this, this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, what does this mean? God is saying simply, I am always here. I'm the same God I was when I made this promise to your fathers. I never left. And I am the God who shows up in history and expresses my character and my purpose not through mere broadcast, but by action. This can also be translated, I will be. In other words, God simply is eternal. He hasn't gone anywhere. Circumstances notwithstanding, God has not changed. And that's a good thing for us to remember too. Your circumstances, if you're surprised by suffering this week, that will be very difficult for you to bear, I'm sure. But it won't mean anything about God's character, His love, His purpose, His grace for you. He is always the same. But Moses is fearful, and understandably so. In chapter 4, they're still talking. Moses is still arguing. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Pretty good assurance, right? I make everything. Nothing escapes my attention. I am. I just am here and always will be. I am the one who will be with you and go with you. I'll tell you what to say. What's Moses' response? Oh, my Lord, send someone else. I love the clarity of that. <laughs> now, it's easy to pick on Moses. But disciples of Jesus have that conversation with the Lord all the time. Will you indulge me if I stop preaching and go to meddling, as they say in Texas? <laughs> Have you heard that before? He's stopped preaching and gone to meddling. In any church, 20% of the people do 80% of the serving and the giving. What does that mean? That means that there's 80% of a church who is still growing to maturity... And that's okay. Everyone has a journey. Everyone has to make their way around that family table from baby to parent. But that means that in any given time, in any church, 80% of people who know and love the Lord are saying to Jesus, who am I? 
and it's the wrong question. It's not about who am I, it's about I am. That makes the difference. That's the argument they're having. And Moses has been given every reassurance that God can offer, and he says to God simply, send somebody else. As we continue reading, we're going to discover that not only are people brutally oppressed under a brutal king, a pharaoh, and they've got a fearful leader, but the captives themselves are not willing to be rescued. And that's a tough thing. There's nothing in this story that sets up for the exodus. There's not one thing happening on the ground that leads anyone to believe that this situation is fixable, that these people are rescuable. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Listen to God explain who he is, what I am means. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Quick little aside. That means that when God acts in your life, when he's done working, you'll know him in a way that you didn't know him had he not taken you through that crisis. Laverne Rogers can tell you things about God that I can't because God has simply shown him things that he hasn't shown me. Simple as that. And that's not false modesty, that's just a recognition of what God has done in his life. To be in Japan and be cut off by half of your support before you can say good morning in the local language, I mean, that's tough. I'm not sure we're in, you know, we can really grasp what Japan must have been like in 1950. There was this war, see? Brutal war. No internet. It was hard to get a care package over to Japan in those days. And half of his support is gone. That's why he can tell you, 65 years later, things about God that perhaps very few other people can. And the point of this in discipleship is, at the very moment you have an opportunity to know God better, if you flinch and draw back and refuse to go with Him, you won't know Him in that new and fresh way. If you bank on your history, your experience, your talent, your skill set, what you can afford, you will not know him in this new and fresh way. That's what God is telling Moses. I'm doing something new and I'm revealing myself and who I am in a new way. I also establish, verse 4, my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. In other words, I haven't forgotten I'm still keeping that promise. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Who's doing the rescuing? God. You see the repetition? I am doing this. I remember. I see. I hear. I will rescue. I will redeem. I will act. 
Yes, Pharaoh will have his part, Moses, and you will have yours, but I am the rescuer. But look at what God and Moses are dealing with in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I love the realism of the Bible. That's an entirely predictable response from people who have been enslaved for 400 years. We hear you, Moses, but there's no way. You don't know what it's like here. You didn't grow up here. We're glad you were rescued, but you haven't heard your, you haven't heard your mother talk about the day they took your brother's. can't happen, Moses. They have 600 elite chariots in addition to many, many others. We have no weapons, Moses. They, they keep us alive, really, so we can work. We don't have enough strength to fight. We barely have tools. We have no weapons. They could sweep through here and wipe us out in a day, Moses. Not going to happen. There is deliverance, but the people are unwilling. Now, what's the point of the Exodus story? Believe it or not, it's not the Red Sea. It's not the plagues. Those are all contributors. Those are all details in an extraordinary historical event that has a single message. Salvation comes from God. Period. End of story. He uses people and he invites people into partnership with him, as Laverne so wisely said, but salvation comes from God, no one else. Moses is not the deliverer. God is the deliverer. In your own search for God, if you're trying to figure out who God is and whether any of this makes sense to you enough to trust God and ask Him to forgive your sin and bring you into His family, if that's part of your spiritual journey, and I know it is for many of you, you need to know this, salvation comes from God. It's not up to you. Thank God it's not up to you. Religion invites you to save yourself, and that's a dead end. You can't. You never have been able to, and you never will. Religion is actually a burden that invites you to do increasingly difficult things that you will never successfully accomplish. God, the gospel, the good news of the Bible announces simply that God has come and He will rescue, He will save, He will redeem, He will bring people into His family. He will show up and show off and He will show them who He is so that we may live comfortably in rest, in love as His family. He turns slaves into sons and daughters. That's the good news. Salvation comes from God. You see, as I continue reading this story, I see that everything in it supports that single idea with observations like this. When it comes to saving people, God sees their need. Exodus 3, the Lord said to Moses when he first spoke to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. See the repetition? I see it, Moses. I hear it, and I'm coming because I see what's going on. Not only that, God not only sees, God also sins. 
He spoke to Moses and he said, Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There's no contradiction here. God saves, but as part of his rescue mission, God sends people. And he's going to send a man so broken down, so humbled, so fearful, that there's, there should be no possible way that anyone could read this story and think that it's really about Moses. It's not. It's about the God who sent Moses. Is God still sending? Yes. A thousand times yes. If you know him, you're sent. Sent where? Maybe to Japan. Careful with Laverne Rogers. He will recruit you if you talk to him for two minutes. <laughs> I know this because we spent just a little fraction of time together two years ago on two different days, and he recruited me twice. <laughs> now, why does he do that? Because he believes in ascending God who reaches down into San Antonio, Texas. Is that right, sir? And says to someone who doesn't know the language, speaks to him about a land he's not seen, and just sends him on a ship loaded with light bulbs. He's ascending God. Now, that's a big missionary story. God sent somebody to you so that you would know who Jesus is. You're here because God sent somebody to you. You thought you were looking, and maybe you were. Maybe circumstances had gotten so desperate in your life that you were looking for answers, but I know your story. Even if you've never told me your individual journey with God, I know God sent somebody to you who pointed the way back to God, back to salvation, back to healing for you. God is a sending God. And really the heartbeat of this story is not only that God sees the need and sends someone to address it, the main point of the whole Bible in this story highlights it beautifully through this historical event. God not only sees and sends, He supplies everything that's needed for salvation. So that we don't have to do anything but believe Him, obey Him when He speaks and tells us to move. Exodus 6, God said, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now if you've read the story, what are those great acts of judgment? What's He going to do? The famous plagues. I'll tell you why those exist in just a minute. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. See the repetition? Who's working? Whose rescue is this? It's God's. He saw. He's sending. He's going to supply everything they need on a catastrophically spectacular level. He's going to do something so important that archaeologists are still digging, and it may surprise you to find out they're finding widespread confirmation of these historical events. Belaterra has been showing a, a documentary for the last couple of weeks. 
and some people are trying to explain it away, it's simply history. God acted in history and thousands of years later we still have trace, at least trace and sometimes very solid evidence of what he did to rescue. He's the one that's supplying the rescue. And in this great emphasis on grace and God doing all the work, and believe me, He does, there can be a misunderstanding on the part of those who are rescued to say, I am now free to do anything I please. And grace gives way to license and rebellion. Don't miss this in the passage. We are freed to be His, that He may be our God that we may worship and love Him as Redeemer, that we may trust Him when it's difficult, and that we may obey Him when He tells us to do hard things. Moses, God said to the people of Israel, when I rescue you, you will worship me, you will serve me, you will be mine, and I will be with you as your God. Same reason He rescued you. He supplies everything that's needed. Why the plagues? Why the famous plagues? I can't go into the details, there's not enough time, and I'd almost certainly lose your interest, but know this, every one of the plagues confronts an Egyptian deity. Moses strikes the earth, and lice rise from it, because Seth, the god of the earth, was being judged and confronted as a false idol. There is a god of the sun, who is exposed as a failure and a fake by darkness. Pharaoh himself has raised his people for generations with this simple belief, I am God on earth. When you hear the voice of Pharaoh, you are hearing the voice of God himself. And God says, no, nonsense, falsehood, devilish lie. And he exposes Pharaoh by doing something very painful, taking his firstborn and all the firstborns of Egypt. What's happening? There's a showdown between the gods of Egypt and the one true God. And in succession, because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God reveals himself more and more as the one true God. Why am I telling you all this? So that you'll know that you can trust him. He does supply everything you need. Your next step in discipleship, the rest of this day and Monday and the rest of this week, as God continues to call you to himself, you can trust him at every point because he has seen your need. He has sent not only a person, but he has sent his son Jesus, and you have been freed by God's supply to walk with him and to love him all the days of your life until he takes you home with him, and then you discover that I didn't tell you the half of it. And that he's far, far better than I could ever tell you and that your repeated readings of his revelation in the Bible could ever show you. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Remember that. A male, a year old. Why? Why are they doing this? This is the tenth and final plague. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. 
and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Did you catch the last part? God said, when I see the blood, I will what? I will pass over you. I will go across this land that hates me and defies me and denies me. That has crushed my people who belong to me. Who has refused to listen to me. I will pass through them and death will enter every home. And every stable. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Thousands of years later, 2,000 years ago, John the Baptist, a preacher of good news, telling people that God was going to send his final and best messenger, saw Jesus one afternoon, and in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, we read this. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb. You see, when Israel was invited to find an unblemished male lamb and to sacrifice it, to have a family dinner while they awaited their rescue, while they awaited quite literally to be thrown out of the land of Egypt, carrying with them the wealth of the Egyptians... Before they sat down to that family dinner, they were to do this extraordinarily strange thing, put blood over the doorposts and over the top of your door. I wonder if any head of family that night said, this is too weird. Why are we doing this? What in the world is going on, God explains, when I pass through in judgment, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And this story was told in Israel for generations. It is told still today. And then Jesus walks in and John the Baptist says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Not a family lamb that people had to pool money together so that they could afford. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one God has sent. How big, how important, how saving is His sacrifice? He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. And then Peter, this commercial fisherman, one of Jesus' first disciples, writes this letter toward the end of his life, and he explains to those who had believed in Jesus, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's a picture, it's a prophecy, it's a promise to you, to me, so that you would See God working in your life, seeing your sin, seeing your separation from Him, sending someone to come to your rescue, His Son Jesus to die for your sins, and then another human being who found Him too, to tell you about Him and to point you back toward Him. And God has supplied every single thing that is needed for your rescue. So what do I take from all this? This. There is no slave that God cannot free. To become his child. Doesn't matter how far you've strayed from God. Doesn't matter how ashamed or guilty you are of your past or your present. 
you can be freed. There is no slavery. There is no sin. There is no bondage so crushing that God cannot free you to become his child. From Moses, I learned this. A broken person is a mighty instrument in the hand of God. Once his disciples, once God followers, once Christians realize that he is the one, that he has all the resources, that he sees the end game, that he knows exactly what he's doing, and we break from our pride and our self-reliance and our fear, which is another expression of pride, and say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you say, those broken, humble people become a very, very strong, mighty instrument in the hand of God. The question that you and I have to decide is, are we going to listen to ourselves saying, who am I, or are we going to listen to the one true great I am? He never stops speaking to his children saying, trust me, follow me, do this. And the central message of this story is salvation belongs to God. Our part is to obey him. The moment of faith in those, in those Hebrew households that night was even with what, they, what little they could understand and with trembling hands knowing what was coming, celebrating the Passover. And putting the blood over the door so that God could come through Egypt and pass over them, leaving not death, but salvation for them. That's a point of decision for you. 2,000 years after God sent His Son, the Lamb of God, the question before you is whether you're going to trust Him. You're going to trust His blood, His sacrifice, so that God will pass over you in judgment and welcome you into His family. If you're not there yet, this is the point of the whole Bible. This is really the only message our church has to give you, that Jesus saves. He really does. It's not a cliche. It's not a pop culture phrase. It's the central act of human history, and he's searching. He has come. He has been sent for you. Trust him. And if you already are, and he's calling you to follow, marvel at the strength of your father who can do all this, and do what he asks you to do next. Don't let fear, don't let your own lack of capacity hinder you from obeying God. It's in trusting God that you will discover the marvel of who he actually is because salvation comes from God. Would you pray with me now? Father, there are people here, I'm sure, who are afraid to trust you. They're just not even sure if you're there and you're listening. Would you speak and act in their lives right now while I'm praying aloud and reassure them and bring them across the line, Lord, from fear to faith? And for the many, many disciples, Lord, who will worship here today, who were afraid to trust you with everything you've given them, stressed about marriages and finances and children and feeling starved for time to love you and to serve you? Would you remind them, Lord, of your great strength so that they will obey you? Encourage everyone, Lord, in their next step of discipleship, the people who just came to your family or just figuring you out, help them take those first few baby steps of trust. And for those of us, Lord, who have been following you much longer, let us not lean on our own experience or our own success in being part of your family, but help us surrender to you again as the one who saves and call us 
Lord, and go with you wherever you call us to go. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.